0: to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Avergatinos. And we're picking up this evening with hypothesis number 40. And this evening, we're on page 342 at the very top of the page. We sort of stopped mid-paragraph last time uh, because we got uh, wrapped in a discussion towards the end of the group. Uh, But that's okay. I think uh, it's a nice place to pick up after rereading it. If we remember, uh, the fathers have been speaking to us here about uh, the importance of being uh, prudent in thinking about one's station in life, in particular where one uh, resides, that there is o- often a temptation to change externals with the hope of changing also what's going on internally, uh, or with the idea of produ- uh, pursuing a uh, a greater ideal for ourselves, an ideal uh, life, uh, and uh, one that is perhaps without the current frustrations that we are bearing at the moment. And uh, I always love passages like this because they deal with the, the subtle movements of the mind and the heart that we often aren't very attentive to, and yet things there are things that can come up almost on a daily basis when you know whether it's with our job or uh, uh, in family life or religious community, you know, we, we can face frustrations uh, that blind us, you know, to what we have uh, or make us even just momentarily turn our eye to something else. The grass always seems greener as it were on the other side. And uh, and certainly this plagued uh, the Desert Fathers as well, whether they were living in uh, a community, Synovium, Uh, with other monks or living as anchorites on their own. Uh, Sometimes they could be tempted to leave one for the other uh, because of the difficulties that they are experiencing or their particular challenges. And so what we'll find emphasized here in the coming paragraphs is uh, the importance of a prudent mind, uh, one who has sort of this practical experiential knowledge uh, or wisdom uh, from uh, having... Gone through things over the course of the years, Uh, a kind of knowledge that arises through this experience, so that when we see this movement of the mind and the heart, we can be we can tell what's going on with us, and uh, and allow this allows us then to maintain a kind of both emotional and spiritual stability. Uh, It keeps us from being pulled in one direction or another from day to day. And often we will focus upon things in our day-to-day life in that way, that we will weigh things on an emotional level, even. And one day something will have a greater pull upon us or upon our emotion, our imagination as well. And so we'll, will we'll turn in that direction and the next day it can be something quite different. And uh, we can be uh, ever so changeable, I think in our uh, thinking and uh, in our desires. And so this hypothesis warns us against it. Uh, Number three, so we're on page 342 again, uh, about midway or at the very top of the first paragraph with the word others. Others again do not like working with their hands, yet others are puffed up with vainglory and seek the praises of those who hear about them for supposedly succeeding in becoming anchorites without considering the toils and the difficulties that await them. All of these monks, by trusting in their own thoughts, fall into fearful and miserable dangers." So a pretty strong statement that, you know, one uh, can seek the anchoritic life simply because they don't like working with their hands or they don't like having to deal with people on a day-to-day basis. That they can be have a sort of a natural inclination uh, to solitude rather than something that God has drawn them to, and uh, and or they don't like the common work of a community that goes into maintaining it, and so think that if they go into a life of greater solitude, they'll be freed from some of those cares, only to realize that suddenly they become solely responsible uh, for taking care of themselves on a day-to-day basis. There's nobody cooking their meals, uh, there's nobody cleaning uh, you know, certain rooms in the monastery, uh, everybody in a monastery has their particular obedience and job, uh, but when you're on your own, you have to take care of yourself, get your own food, your own water, and, uh, uh, protect yourself, uh, and certainly in some of the regions where they were living, that would have been an important thing to be living in a community, and, uh, and so, Uh, St. Ephraim, who's writing here, says they they fall into the most fearful and miserable dangers, uh, physically and spiritually. They can find themselves uh, wanting, and uh, one who pursues and switches to the anchoritic life in particular uh, can fall into a, uh, a special kind of danger where if they fall, they have no one there to pick them up. And they end up relying more and more upon their private judgment, and so can fall into delusion if there's nothing there to check their thinking or to to, uh, press them uh, to reflect upon what they are doing. And this can be particularly dangerous when it comes to ascetic practices and avoiding the extremes. And this will come up a number of times throughout this hypothesis as to why this quick movement in one's life, especially to the life of solitude can be dangerous. Ephraim goes on to say, we should not be heedlessly enticed by our volitions and desires, brethren. It is preferable that we humble ourselves before our neighbor with the love of God, and that each of us know precisely his own limitations. Perhaps someone will raise the following objection. In that case, how is it that we find some fathers who have practiced this virtue, let him take into account that the fathers never did anything recklessly or haphazardly. Let everyone be of prudent mind for the example of the fathers. So even those who did change their way of life or who did go into greater solitude would seek the guidance and the counsel of others or put that desire to the test over the course of years uh, to avoid acting impulsively. And so occasionally you will hear stories of monks who move move into the deeper desert uh, because the solitude uh, that they had sought was beginning to be lost to them because of the number of visitors and those seeking counsel. Uh, But even there, even though there might be good reason for them doing so, uh, one would not be quick to act. And that's in our day and age again. And I think this is a very hard thing because we so often have so many things rated right our fingertips where we can get instantaneous uh, response to our desires uh, including information and we have google uh, google search and so w- without much effort we you know can get the information and the facts that we want uh instantaneously and this goes. this is true for all kinds of things food uh you know that we 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 never have to weight, as it were. And so putting things to the test, putting our desires uh, and wants uh, to the test is something that we might not be as familiar with. Number two, it is told of Abba Macarius that he used to say, when I was living in my cell in Scythus, I was bothered by tempting thoughts. Go, they urged me, to the depths of the desert, and attend to what you see there. I remained fighting against these thoughts for five years, saying to myself, myself, perhaps it is from the demons. So the great Markarius, uh, you know, struggling for five years with these persistent thoughts uh, to go deeper into the desert, to go further into the desert. Do you see the prudence of a holy man? Was he perhaps seduced at once, or did he run off? Did he perhaps accept thoughts? None of these. He remained where he was, examining the thoughts attentively. He fasted, kept vigil, and prayed out of fear that the thoughts that had come from the demons. We, however, when we are presented with a thought, lose control of ourselves and go wild. And not only do we fail to examine our thoughts with prayerful attention, but we do not even humble ourselves by seeking advice from others. This is why we are easily taken captive by the devil. And even our ability to communicate is a kind of a dangerous, so quickly it's kind of a dangerous thing now, because the moment that something comes in the mind, and sometimes even when we're angry, uh, you know, we can think, I, I'm just going to tell this person what's on my mind without uh, letting ourselves cool down or thinking through uh, what it is that we want to say. And even when it has to, to do with matters of great import or uh, where it has to do with issues of, of intimacy between couples, often communicating through this very cold instrument, through texting. So not even talking to each other uh on the phone having a, a conversation back and forth but not being able to see the a person's response to what one is saying and uh and often again not taking the time to ask yourself do i really want to say this or say this in this way in this fashion and uh i've seen i've seen it become the source of great tension in in relationships and uh and certainly with texting in this instance, quicker is not better. And uh, especially with spouses, oftentimes the first thing I have to tell them is stop having conversations via text uh, at any time of the day. And uh, no ma- is, if it's about, you know, what time to meet someplace, that's fine but not uh, intimate conversations
1: uh, about family life or your relationship uh, through the use of an instrument like this. After that, Abba Macarius continued, since the thought persisted,
0: I actually went into the desert and there I found a lake and an island in the middle of it. The animals in the desert went to this lake to drink. In the midst of these animals, I saw two naked men. After we had talked a little, I asked them, how can I become a monk? If one does not renounce all things of this world, he cannot become a monk. They replied to me, I am a weak. I am weak, and I cannot do what you do. I said to them a second time, if you cannot do what we do, they replied to me again, then stay in your cell and weep for your sins. Oh, the humility of this man who revered God. Oh, the prudence of a virtuous soul. He who excelled in such great and noteworthy feats did not judge himself worthy of this undertaking. Whereas we who are nothing and who do not have the capacity for toil out of presumption and self-satisfaction attempt things beyond our limits, thereby provoking our Lord and God, which is certainly something to be feared. Woe to the man who trusts in his own strength, or asceticism, or intelligence, and not in God. For strength and power come only from God. So here's markarius you know, one of the most well-known of the Desert Fathers, uh, extremely holy. And as we've been told, you know, plagued with these thoughts to pursue a greater asceticism. And so even after struggling for five years, he goes and he encounters these two monks who've immersed themselves in in water. And uh, sometimes you'll hear stories of this, you know, of those taking on this penance of standing in cold water all night long or something along those lines. And so he finds them stripped of all worldly goods, but also embracing this kind of extreme form of asceticism and Uh, Whether it's something that God reveals to him or he actually encountered individuals like this, I I don't know. But uh, nonetheless, you know, he sees in this vision of these two men something that he's not able to do, that they've embraced a kind of penance and asceticism that is beyond him. And so despite the fact that he had lived for years the ascetic life and had been very disciplined, he acknowledges that his own constitution uh, would not allow this or that it would not be something that was good for him and acknowledges it to these two men who tell him, go back and stay within your cell and there weep for your sins. Focus on repentance of turning to God, uh, but do not thrust yourself into an asceticism that is not going to bear any fruit for you, but perhaps only harm and uh, make you give up the ascetic life altogether by falling into the extremes or by following your own judgment, uh, private judgment in the matter. And so he returns and does exactly what they say. And, uh, you know, the last line struck me, woe to the man who trusts in his own strength or asceticism or intelligence and not in God that here we find in some of the earliest writings of the Desert Fathers a warning, you know, not to make asceticism an end in itself and to avoid private judgment when it comes to the practice of this asceticism uh, because we can have tendencies to the extremes, either negligence, sloth, or we will overestimate in our pride what we're capable of doing, and both have their dangers. And so the middle way of of avoiding excess uh, was part of the wisdom of the fathers. And, And, you know, I think they're often presented, you know, whether it's in people's imagination or how they read the fathers as being these excessive individuals who push themselves to these extreme limits. And from our perspective, uh, that would seem true, you know, in terms of the nature of their discipline and the environment in which they lived. But again, it was something that they did over the course of time and in a measured way. And, uh, and as God, by his grace, granted them uh, to, to live it. Uh, but even they uh, had, and perhaps especially they had to be watchful, uh, that they did not allow themselves to be pulled by pride into, into a life that wasn't appropriate for them And I you know, we, we certainly see this in many areas of life where people push themselves to extreme. Uh, for uh, I think there's like in cross fitness, uh there can be this overpushing of the body uh, that they'll take these exercises to the extreme and they can damage their muscles in such a way because they never give them this opportunity to heal. You know, part of the exercise and the pushing is you're tearing down the muscles, and they often push to this excessive uh, s- state on a day to day basis. And in the end, they can end up hurting themselves and doing damage to their muscles uh, that uh, is, has a lasting impact upon them. And, uh, and so this is true in the area of asceticism too, that we can bring ourselves to this place where we hurt ourselves and do damage to ourselves and even put our own uh, faith life in jeopardy. And I've mentioned here before, St. Bruno, who is the founder of the Carthusians, saying that there you cannot keep the bow taut constantly. You have to relax it from time to time, otherwise you will ruin it. And that's true in the spiritual life, that we cannot be pushing to the extreme uh, where uh, because we are human beings. We, we have our limits, physical limits. And so there has to be a kind of wisdom and balance that guides us. If we're pushing constantly and going deeper and deeper into fasting, eventually we'll make ourselves sick or so weak that we aren't able to keep our maintain our spiritual disciplines at all. And so the wisest abbots, you know, are very attentive to the state of their men. And uh, I was visiting Ireland a number of years ago, and I was struck by the abbot of the monastery. Uh, asking and I was there for a couple weeks and uh, at the end of the day asking anyone if they needed not to participate in the communal compliment the night prayer if they needed extra rest or if they needed to not get up early for the early morning prayers because they had been doing some deep physical labor on the property and, uh, or had, be, had been doing so for a number of days straight. So he was very attentive to them, uh, not only on a spiritual level, but physically, that, uh, that they would have the rest that they needed in order that they might not feel ill. That he could, he understood that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And if you're, you know, trying to sprint in the monastic life, you're not going to last,
1: last too long. Any comments so far on Ephraim's writing? Okay, number three, on page 343. Let us examine
0: the life of St. Anthony carefully, and we shall see that this saint did everything under the guidance of divine revelation. Did he not, however, live in a monastery? Did he not use clothing? Did he not eat bread? Did he not work with his own hands? Did he not acquire disciples who wrapped his body in a shroud after his death and buried it? Indeed, all of the fathers, with very few exceptions, lived in this way. Let us also emulate their lives and let us journey on the middle and royal way without deviating either to the right or to the left. And so... Ephraim makes a point of saying, here here we look at Anthony, who even receives his vocation upon hearing the scriptures uh, and uh, goes out to the desert, but allows himself in choosing this path then uh, to uh, support himself with the work of his own hands, to surround himself with disciples and, and others who are pursuing the same ends. Uh, so that uh, he could not only take care of them, but they of him, and also then provide for him at his death. And uh, as Ephraim says, you know, there are exceptions to this. Paul the hermit preceded Anthony into the desert, and uh, and Anthony only comes upon him uh, at the very end of Paul's life, and uh, he's able to bury him. Uh, only because he was guided by God to Paul uh, and uh, to engage in this conversation. And Anthony was able to receive support through it. Uh, But uh, that's a rarity, what we see in Paul the hermit, that uh, he's the exception to the role. And so there are exceptions that we see in the spiritual life where uh, God can make up for what is lacking or God, a person in a particular way. But uh, we are bound, I think, to follow this kind of prudence, this practical wisdom, this uh, knowledge that arises out of of experience and not just our own experience, but the common experience of the living church uh, throughout the centuries. And uh, and so even Anthony, we hear, understands the need to avoid the extremes, neither deviating to the right or to the left. And so this is the royal way. And uh, Cassian emph- emphasizes it in his writings as well in the conferences. And it comes up often within the writings of the fathers. And I think it's a good bit of advice for us to cling to. Everyone, therefore, should complete with great humility and patience the task that he has set out to accomplish. If he is unstable in his habits and thoughts and roams about from place to place and from task to task, according to his own will, the fruits of his works will be unripened, unripe, I'm sorry, if indeed such a person is able to produce any fruit at all. This is because the evil one does not attack everyone in the same way, but meticulously investigates the point at which he can most easily war on each person. After he has discovered the weak point, he then suggests the appropriate thoughts to him as the guarantee of a supposedly more perfect life. So you can understand that the temptation for one who's seeking to live imperfection, the perfection of love, of faith, uh, of obedience is going to be tempted then to pursue that in an even greater way. And so the evil one is going, as Ephraim tells us, to to watch and observe meticulously the kinds of thoughts that go through our mind to figure out where the weak spot is, where where the chink in the armor is, if you will, uh, in order that he might strike us down and uh, often it is through I think at times you know calling into question something about our life and the value of what we're going through and certainly in I think every path we come up against those times in our life where it's hard to see the worth of certain things or the meaning of certain things why is God asking this of me and what possible spiritual fruit could this bear for me or for others by going down this path or experiencing this kind of trial or difficulty. And, uh, and if we experience, uh, you know, a kind of feeling of emptiness, or that our efforts are not producing fruit, then we will want to take what is the prerogative of God uh, into our own hands. And say, okay, I'm going to go do something else. And the point here of Ephraim is 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 good. Uh, the fruits of his work will be unripe if he produces any fruit of all at all. That a person who's constantly up, being uprooted and planted somewhere else is never going to be able to put down uh, roots in order that his life might bear fruit. And so there's a kind of natural Wisdom in that, that that which is allowed to be planted, to put down deep roots, is not only going to produce fruit, but is also going to persevere through difficult times, that which has deep roots, you know, that spread out, that, you know, when things seem very barren, and life doesn't seem to be nourishing us, uh,
1: those deep roots are what can keep us moving forward. So again, you know these are, are are some of
0: the more subtle things uh, in our day-to-day life, and sometimes the things that we are least attentive to, uh, and yet they can be
1: the most important in the spiritual life. Any thoughts or comments? Continuing on number four here, the devil causes
0: one who lives in a synovium to have fantasies about the desert, which was vast in the region where ancient monks dwelt, and goads him to seek after the strictest asceticism and the most arduous way of life. Yet he advises the one who dwells in the desert to flee that place because it is supposedly dry, providing no consolation at all, and offering not even the smallest amenity to those who are weaker, And these thoughts he implants constantly in the mind of the hermit. He incites him to begin building a tower until he gets discouraged with this and says to himself, it is better for me to build a column. Then after working for a little while on that, he changes his mind again. It is preferable for me to build a cell, he says. And no sooner does he reach a midpoint in this job than he finds it burdensome and leaves it half finished wearing himself to no avail and accomplishing nothing useful. In this way, the monk by not remaining in one place is unable to yield perfect fruit, which is the product of spiritual prudence. So, you know, this constant striving and uh, there can be this urge, you know, I think those who like to travel or move around want is called wanderlust, right? Isn't that the term for it? Where they, they're they just wanderers and they want to move from place to place and have experience to experience. And, uh, and I think there can be this uh, constant need that certain individuals have to be creative, to have their energies be directed in a certain way to produce something that uh, in their eyes is of, of great value. And uh, and yet, they're, again, their their hearts can be uh, ever so changeable or even after they've accomplished one thing, cannot be satisfied with simply rooting themselves in it and allowing what they've created through the work of their hands to build uh, bear fruit for them, not allow that stability of what they've created to bear fruit, but have to move on to the next task to build something else in their mind that they think is important or that God desires. And uh, we've talked about this before, it's come up a number of times, that there can be uh, this, you know, kind of uh, sublimation uh, that takes place in, uh, in our lives, where energy is, you know, especially when our asceticism is rooted more in, Uh, a kind of defense, uh, is more of a defense mechanism of dealing with the power of our uh, appetites and desires. And so celibate men over the course of time have often been great builders of churches and, you know, one after another and, you know, one project after another. And uh, it can be a way, and that's not always a bad thing. Sublimation isn't a terrible thing where we direct certain energies to things that are that are good and productive, but it can also lead to this, you know, constant movement from thing to thing, where, you know, what we are doing seems very fruitful on the surface, but isn't really touching the heart or transforming the heart. So, uh, you know, living the life of a Christian is not about productivity, especially in the ways that the world looks at it. And uh, yet, we can be very much driven by that. Uh, how many people are coming to this or that group or ministry? Uh, you know, decisions can be made uh, in terms of what's offered or taught in a parish. You know, by how attractive it is, how many people it draws initially. And uh, the problem is, is that sometimes those things aren't enduring because they don't speak to that deeper part of an individual's religiosity. And so it might stir some interest or curiosity, Uh, but when it comes to matters of faith and uh, uh, our relationship with God, it can't be simply something that's driven by curiosity or that becomes a form of entertainment or satisfying uh, this kind of intellectual curiosity as well you know that and often faith life can be reduced to that you know this constant uh reflection upon theological or philosophical ideas and not that that's wrong uh and does not have a place within our, our life but uh if our faith life is reduced to that, and on a practical level, we are not pursuing Christ, or the life of virtue, uh, can become problematic. John Ingram writes, "I'm wondering whether the extreme depravity of the modern world creates a greater temptation to retreat to a more extreme asceticism than, say, a century ago, uh, or even during the times of the Desert Fathers. Lest we're in more danger of being thrown off balance." from a balanced approach. Yeah, I think whenever there is a a kind of void, something is often going to rush in and try to fill that. And wherever there is this kind of quick response, it can give way to extremes. And so like liturgically, I think in the 60s and 70s, this is often a big thing. You know, there was some uh, liturgical uh, experimentation and sometimes a loss of reverence, focus, and, uh, and there can, the pendulum can swing back the other way in a kind of reactive fashion to that, uh, to a, a more le- legalistic approach to liturgy and how it's done. And so there can be dangers at either extreme, or as John mentions here, that you know, we live in this culture of, you know, of almost a kind of hedonism, and so what is the response to that? And uh, I don't think it's necessarily a a religious asceticism. I think uh, there's sometimes this minimalist movement where people, you know, want to simplify their lives, and yet it's not necessarily guided other than by their a own vision of things of life or what they would pursue and it's not to critique I mean I think that life of simplicity can be a good thing in that regard but one can want to throw off a lot of things within the culture or see as uh, meaningless or worthless so many things in the world that also can be good you know whether it's medicine or uh, things along those lines or education uh, and so, in one way or another, we have to be balanced about this. I haven't found too many falling into the extremes of asceticism as of yet. Uh, I, I think uh, what I, I found more developing is a kind of scrupulosity that uh, when there is a kind of spiritual awakening to the the import of one's life. And yet, if this is not, Uh, shaped by uh, the culture of the church or a culture within a family or within the, the spiritual tradition as a whole, then a person can fall into a kind of obsessive compulsive examination of their thoughts and actions and not having though something to guide their reflection and to temper that Uh, certainly with this vision of the mercy and the love of God uh, or the the wisdom of the fathers in terms of how they look at the passions and how they are healed and the nature of that struggle and so one can fall into a kind of self-contempt and lose sight of the the beauty uh of who we who we are as human beings and certainly as those who are made in the image and likeness of god and those who are sons and daughters of god by by grace by virtue of our baptism and uh and so it almost becomes a kind of religiosity without
1: soul uh and it can be a very dark kind of of existence any other thoughts okay so oh i saw another question come up louise would recommend allowing ourselves to
0: experience the void elated to the longing to be with the beloved being conscious and tolerating the pain of longing while also being in this world with its joys and pleasures in a contained way Yes. And I think, you know, I think we see this, especially in the writings of like Frise of Avila, you know, one who writes in this very poignant way about this longing within the human heart uh, that can be painful at times uh, because it's only satisfied uh, in God. And that nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy it, and so allowing oneself to experience that, uh, I think those who are in the position of offering spiritual counsel, you know, you don't want you don't want to become fixers. Uh, sometimes allowing people to experience what they're going through as it is uh, becomes very important because God can be revealing something to them in and through it. And it's not all about being happy and or having things go our our way. It's about entering into this relationship with the living God. And that can be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And uh, the saints knew this. uh, And uh, that it can be the love of God can be a fearsome thing. Uh, Our God is a jealous God in the sense of his love. For us and the intensity of that love uh, can be a beautiful thing, but it can also create within the, the heart a longing for, again, that may, a lo- such a longing that makes life in this world at times painful and
1: uh, where one begins to have a longing for heaven itself, knowing that uh, that love will only be sated there. Okay. Let's see here, where do I leave off? Are we on number five? I'm sorry, I've lost my place. Okay, number five on page 344.
0: The enemy also suggests various other thoughts to the Cenobitic monks. He often says to each Cenobite, What more are you doing here than you did in the world? There, too, you worked and ate like the irrational animals. And what kind of virtue is this, that you only work and eat? See, the warfare of fornication is raised against you through food. But then again, if you do not eat, it is not possible for you to endure hard work. It would be better for you to leave this place and go into the inner desert if you wish to be saved, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof take a knife with you so that you can pick plants to eat as did the monks of old who succeeded in pleasing God. What need is there of you to live here where there are scandals, slanders, and various other problems which should go unmentioned? <laughs> so you could see how the evil one begins to work on one living in the community you're just, you know, you're getting fat and lazy here living in the and in, in the community, lazy on a spiritual level. And how is that really any different from one who's purely just living in the world? You work and you eat, you work and you eat. And uh, uh, you're not reaching that height of sanctity through that. And again, that can be a very tempting thing to see in the mundane of the day-to-day life of of monasticism, something that is not shaping and purifying the heart. If you Remember, we've talked about how they looked at their work and how they described it as their obedience, that they would take up their work for the monastery that day and try to do it with as much perfection and love as it could be, no matter how simple or mundane it seemed to be. Uh, But one could easily lose sight of that and say, you know, there's no value. Why are you either depriving yourself of the things of this world or thinking, why are you thinking that it has any benefit that is different from living in the world? Because your focus is cleaning rooms and cooking meals and doing laundry and, you know, plowing the fields and, and, and things such as that. And so the evil one could could be relentless to the point where a person says, you know, uh, and not only am I experiencing this kind of uh, mundane life that seems to be mediocrity, but I'm experiencing in the midst of this, all this crazy stuff going on in the monastery, these personalities that are irritating, that, you know, are quirky or weird, or even where there could be some scandalous uh, things that erupt from time to time in the common life, Uh, as he says, unmentionable here. And so why why stay here when I, you know, am possibly going to be exposed to all of that and its frustration? You know, is that not going to be something that not only keeps me from pursuing the, the greater sanctity, but draws me into a kind of despair or hopelessness. So take a knife, go off into the desert and do what they did. You know, just cut plants for yourself and, you know, God will provide from the earth for you. And uh, again, this kind of enthusiasm. Who was it that wrote a book about it? I don't know if it was Knox uh, I think it was wrote a book called enthusiasm that I think is often overlooked uh, that enthusiasm unchecked can actually lead to the extremes that the monks talk about here. That, uh, of course, it can be something very important and powerful for us in terms of motivating us and moving us forward in the pursuit of that which is holy. Uh, but unchecked by the grace of God and unperfected by the grace of God, it can lead us uh, to this instability that they're
1: talking about or into the dangers of extremes. And certainly, you know, there's enough of what he describes here, even in terms of our life in
0: the church, you know every day i read online people saying you know every priest is a liar or the church is a mess you know and uh you know and so why why stay here you know why why not you know become something else when you know this person who's in this position of authority is so obviously teaching you know what is heresy and uh Again, this quick communication that exists in our time uh, can be dangerous for that reason as well. You know, little uh, sound bites, you know, partial parts of text or conversations come out and stir up anxiety in people's hearts. So create a kind of instability, even in regard to our
1: life within the church. This, however, I'm sorry, where did I leave off here? If you depart from
0: here, you will be freed from all this. But if you do not want to leave from the inner desert, then go to another place where there are no scandals. You are not without a place to go, for whom has God ever abandoned that he would abandon you? And all the more, since you are in search of what is good, In that place, you will learn another skill from which you will earn sufficient money to give alms to the poor from your labors. Many such thoughts does the evil one suggest to the brother from the right so that the brother will think that he is being led to greater advancement if he
1: assents to these thoughts. So, you know, there may be certain truths mixed in
0: with what the evil one is saying. Uh, Sometimes our perception is not off, uh, but what we do with that, uh, we have to be very careful about it uh, because it can be, again, this temptation to leave something that is uh, more formative in regards to our, our faith, our hope in God, uh, the virtues uh, of patience within us. Now, you know, they they didn't turn a blind eye to these kind of things. I think we'll find later on in this hypothesis, there are certain circumstances where one sh- will will need to make that decision to move on. Uh, and but I think what is being emphasized here, and I think what we want to take hold of, that even if a person is drawn to move on to something else, that they, there is this discernment that takes place with, within humility, that one seeks the counsel of others, that one puts everything to the test, spends time uh, praying and fasting in order that uh, they aren't acting impulsively. And so I wouldn't want anyone to get the sense that the the fathers are saying here that there's never a reason for changing one's place or moving to a different way of life. Certainly one can discern that and or be called to that for a number of different reasons as we'll see. But again, uh, knowing the dangers and knowing how the evil one can can use these kinds of thoughts, we have to be ever vigilant. And that's hard because that might mean that we stay in situations for years, even when it seems obvious to us that something is not right. And yet we have to fast and pray and again, seek
1: counsel before making any movement in our, in our life. Okay. This, however, is a snare. Let the monk withdraw from the snobium and from the protection of the
0: care of the abbot. Let him wander like sheep far from the flock, and he will become a ready meal for the wolf. If he ascends to his tempting thought and brings it to fruition by departing from the inner desert, he will at first be sorely vexed by hunger. Next, the demons will agitate him with timidity, presenting many fearful things and torments to his mind. And so for the monk, they never want to lose sight that the real battle is fought within the inner desert, the heart. And uh, uh, this is where it's to be waged and that the battle is deeply psychological, that it has to do with the thoughts. And so wage the battle there first uh, before you, you move on to another place. Because if you simply embrace the, the and take hold of the bait, uh, you're going to become a ready meal for the wolf. And again, you know, I think as we look to see how this would be applied to our life, you know, a- any life, you know, we if we look at marriage, the temptation there can be every bit as great and every bit as powerful to say, I'm done, you know, or this has grown tiresome beyond measure and uh, and, you know, seek consolation And another life for oneself. Even if it's blessed isolation, you know, at at a a time of temptation, that can seem like the most attractive thing in the world. And, you know, I think we have all probably all fantasized about having that
1: cabin next to the stream, you know, where we can have a little peace of mind and, and heart. In the wake of this,
0: The brother begins to repent and to say to his mind, I fared well when I lived with my brothers and the demon deluded me into going out into this terrible desert where my frightful, uh, I'm sorry, where many frightful wild beasts dwell. What shall I do, wretch that I am, if I fall into the hands of barbarians? How I fear lest I fall in with brigands or some wild beast should encounter me. Besides, there are many demons in these places, for this region is is, uh, desert, and how will I be able to live all by myself in this desert, where unclean spirits are constantly present, especially now that I have grown accustomed to living with many brothers? In truth, if a man who lives by himself in the desert is not vigilant, he will become mentally deranged, as has happened to quite a few And what use will it be if I die an evil death in this desert? So, you know, an individual can come to his senses and then begin to wonder, okay, what do I do? Uh, Am I lost? And uh, uh, the demon's temptations don't cease at that moment. Uh, I think whenever a person begins to come to their senses, it's very difficult to stop that psychological ball from rolling. But even when one gets it slowed down, the evil one is always there to try to get it moving again and to con- convince us to keep going in that same direction. And so Ephraim goes on to say, after the brother has struggled against these thoughts, if he is really prudent, he returns to his synobium. And this effort in this effort of his, He will have to despise every feeling of shame that the demons inspire in him by saying to him if you return to your brothers they will think you impetuous and unfit like a soldier who flees from his military post out of fear but the brothers should not give any credence to the demons on the contrary he should confront them with the following words it will not be As you say, O wicked demons, but they will welcome me rather as an experienced struggler and as one who has put into practice the words of the apostle prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. This is what I did. I tested both ways of life and I found that it is good and pleasing for spiritual brothers to live together. As it is written, a brother helped by a brother is as a strong and lofty city. 18, 19. So, you know, the demons will, you know, even as he is given light and is able to begin to discern the truth about how he was misled in his thoughts will try to make, make him feel that he will be humiliated and shamed by others, even though he's returning to the right path and acting in true prudence. The fear is then that he will be seen as weak
1: and one who's abandoned his post uh, rather than one who's embraced back as a brother. Such difficult battles in in the spiritual life. And uh, I think we're fortunate to have this kind
0: of wisdom set before us because you know, I think it's one thing to read it In these texts, another thing to struggle with it in our own day to day life. I mean, it's again, he focuses his temptations to each individual person and where they are weak. And so, what might seem obvious to us in these readings, you know, I think when we experience them, uh, you know, it can be much different. We can be absolutely convinced in our minds. Uh, that we are doing the right thing and uh, or that we've tested ourselves enough. Uh, Louise writes, I think of Job these days. He was thrown into asceticism, loss, and pain beyond his volition. God tested him via the evil one. At times, I imagine myself in the place of Job in a near future in the hope uh, to remain faithful and to love with God and in love with God, whatever happens, even I do not understand why this is occurring. Maybe Job's trial was a demonstration for us. Yeah, and I think that's why Job has been such a powerful writing for so many people. And, uh, and why it comes to mind so frequently that you know, it is often through the things in our life uh, like this that seems to turn our lives upside down where uh, God often does the greatest of things and uh, even uh, when we are the source of some of these things God uh, can bring about a a greater sanctification and allowing us to experience the consequences of our decisions but with Job you know having lost so much Again, outside of his will, it wasn't because of his choices. In fact, he lived a righteous life that, you know, my mind often goes in thinking about Job to Christ himself, where Paul writes, he's made perfect by what he suffered. And, you know, in Christ, there's no imperfection. So what what are we talking about there, other than the fact that love is revealed in its beauty? And precisely in its selflessness, and its willingness to hold fast uh, in this uh, obedience and trust and faith, even when everything goes dark, and when there is no consolation. Oh, oh God, my God, uh, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, it's there that we see the the beauty. Strangely enough, you know, with the eyes of faith on the cross, that we see the beauty of God's love for us, and uh, and sometimes it's only in our sufferings that you know our faith uh, is perfected as well, and you know it's heartening to hear somebody like Teresa of Avila say, you know, that we often don't carry our crosses, we drag them behind us. Because I think when we have these experiences like Job, you know, we're barely carrying them and trying to toss them off uh, even as much as we can, or would if we could. Uh, And yet, in and through this, God can be perfecting our faith, deepening our prayer in ways that we cannot see, and maybe we'll never see within this within this life and in this way we become more and more conformed to christ uh in the sense of giving ourselves over to the will of god even when we lose sight of where he's
1: leading us or or the experience of the consolation of his love and uh so i'm glad you brought that up especially in light of what we're reading
0: Uh, actually adam says it's the feast of job this week actually when was that was i think it was saturday did we already celebrate it was saturday here at least in the eastern right uh
1: uh,
0: which is i always like that that we celebrate the feast of the prophets and uh because they're often the, the greatest examples for us and prefigure christ in such powerful ways as job does and uh But I I think we see a lot of of the wisdom of that story in in these writings here that we we do not want to flee from the the hardships of our life quickly uh, because God can be very much within them. And uh, by his grace, shaping our hearts in such a way that it is salvific for us and not only us, for us, but for for others, and you could see then why the evil one is going to want to tempt us away from that at the first sign of hardship. If that's true, you know, if our when our faith is tested and put to the test, it becomes all the more perfect and beautiful. Then the evil one's going to want to undermine
1: that to make us question over and over again the path that we are on, or question our faith altogether. So that brings us to 8.30. Anyone, anyone have any final questions or comments? Such a powerful uh, little section. And
0: uh, it's always surprising to me. I'm, again, um, it's one of the reasons I'm glad we don't rush through these things because sometimes the most important uh, insights come out of these sections that uh, you know, on the surface might not seem to speak so powerfully you know but because they're about these subtle little things and we might not think they apply to us so deeply uh, so when we stop there is always with the our father in name of the father the son the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you.
1: May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For in well, peace. Thank you.